This is the Global Research News Hour in the Summer, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. We also acknowledge the crimes committed against the Indigenous people by settlers through broken promises, colonialism, and genocidal policies. We will work toward reparations following a path of respectful partnership going forward. On today's program, we focus on the September 11th attack research by the late, great Graham McQueen, as we have presented it on the show over the last 10 years. We will also have a brief interview with fellow researcher Ted Walter about a new film featuring Graham in a brand new 9-11 film. Graham McQueen in 9-11, in his own words, that is the topic for this edition of the Global Research News Hour. As we described him in the May edition, Graham McQueen received his PhD in Buddhist studies from Harvard University and taught in the Religious Studies Department of McMaster University for 30 years. While at McMaster, he became founding director of the Center for Peace Studies at McMaster. He was also a member of the organizing committee of the Toronto hearings held on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. In today's discussion, we will start with the talk he gave at these hearings. Here is Graham McQueen talking about the eyewitness account of the September 11th attacks on the Global Research News Hour. The idea that these buildings came down because of explosions and even, more specifically, because of explosives planted in the building was an idea found all over the place on 9-11, on the scene by eyewitnesses, even on television, on the radio, in the paper. Very common. And it's important that we know that. It changes our perspective on this. So here's my first video. The reporter here is N.J. Burkett, and he's working for ABC News 7. So this man uh, had to pick up, he and his uh, companion had to pick up the camera and run for their lives. And uh, I don't see any evidence that Mr. Burkett had a particular conspiratorial frame of mind. And he certainly didn't come around after the event. This is his spontaneous judgment standing in a place of great danger. He says, before the material even hits the ground, a huge explosion now, raining debris on all of us. We better get out of the way. And he runs. And just so you know, he also had to run for his life when the North Tower came down a little bit later, and he described that as a blast. So here we have some people who are off screen in, I assume, their apartment or condo in New York City, watching and filming, in this case, the North Tower in the distance, and we can hear them talking in the background. And it's particularly the man uh, who talks here that I want you to listen to. I assume it's Ma Matthew Shapoff. Walking and I had my shoes on and I was about to go out the door. I would have been walking around when this happened. There goes. Oh my God! 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 Oh my
Oh my god! That was a bomb that did that. Oh god, look at that! That was a fucking bomb that did that. There's no goddamn oh way that could have happened. My next example is from fire department, uh, sorry, firefighter Christopher Fenio, and this is taken from the FDNY Oral Histories. And he's talking about a period after the South Tower came down, that was the first tower to come down, and before the North Tower came down. So sometime roughly between 10 and 10.30 in the morning, it turns out there was a debate happening among firefighters on the, at the scene. Quote, at that point, a debate began to rage because the perception was that the building looked like it had been taken out with charges. In other words, not merely that it came down because of explosions in some general sense, but that the building had been rigged for demolition. They were debating that before 10.30 in the morning on 9-11. And that's the debate that is still raging 10 years later the debate between some kind of structural collapse hypothesis and the explosion hypothesis. Pent bomb, as Barbara Honiger pointed out, is the FBI uh, acronym for their investigation of 9-11, and it stands for Pentagon Twin Towers Bombing Investigation. When I first heard that years ago, I thought, what a strange title, because the official narrative has no room for bombs at any of the locations. Is it possible? that some members of the FBI actually thought that it was a bombing originally, and that's when we go to Jack Kelly's very interesting statement, which you heard yesterday, but I'll give it again. This is on 9-11 itself when he reports live that the FBI's working theory at that point is that, quote, at the same time two planes hit the building, there was a car or truck packed with explosives underneath the building which exploded at the same time and brought both of them down. So that according to him, the FBI had an explosion theory. And when we look at the television footage from that day, we find it's not just the FBI. There were police officers talking about explosives in the building. There were firefighters talking about a theory of explosives in the building. It was all over the place. We begin with the famous clip from the Naudet Brothers film, uh, the two French filmmakers who were there on 9-11 and who uh, interviewed people and so on. So this is from the day. Zoda, floor by floor, it started popping out. Tardio, it was as if they had detonated, detonated, you know, as if they were planted to take down a building. Boom, 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 boom. Zoda, yeah. Nothing vague. This is rich testimony. It deserves to be pondered. Cannot be easily dismissed. Now, I want to take that hand gesture as a symbol of what it means to look for corroborating testimony. And that's why when we go on to our second rich case, we're now talking about quality testimony, I want to take Paul Lamosi. This man uh, was helping to uh, do a commercial near the World Trade Center on 9-11. He was building a set. And his testimony is very specific and detailed. And he also gets very moved. If you watch the whole thing, he begins to cry. He was, he was in the thick of things. This is very good eyewitness testimony. This, as far as I can tell, this footage is entirely independent from the Nade Brothers film. That means this gentleman, Paul Lamos, did not see the, the uh, firefighters and they did not see him. 
And here they are independently on the day itself, and we know it's the day itself. We can see Building 7 in the background during Paul Lemos' testimony. The same gesture. Boom, 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 boom. Here's what he says. And by the way, this man doesn't guard himself. The firefighters don't go so far as to say they were explosions. They just say they looked like them. He doesn't guard himself. Here's his gestures. Here's his words. All of a sudden, I looked up, and about 20 stories below the fire, I saw from the corner, he's talking about the North Tower, the same building that the two firefighters were talking about. I saw from the corner, boom, 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 just like 20 straight hits, just went down. And then I just saw the whole building just went, and as the bombs were gone, people just started running. And I sat there and watched a few of them explode. And then I just turned around and I just started running for my life because at that point the World Trade Center was coming right down. Very rich testimony. And I'm going to pause for a moment to say something else about it. If you watch the whole interview, he says at one point, he makes a remarkable statement at one point, that while he was there, after he watched the building come down, they, meaning the authorities presumably, pulled in an architect who came up to Mr. Lemos and told him that he had not perceived explosions. <laughs> he had not perceived explosions. They told me they weren't explosions, he said. And then he, he talks about his interaction with the architect. The architect asks him, what did you see? And that's when he goes through the whole thing all over again. And, and the architect says to him, how fast were they? And he says, like firecrackers. Now, there's no evidence that Paul Lemos was ready to give up what he believed he thought he saw. But already on 9-11, on the scene, he's being told what he didn't perceive. Uh, now, I'll, I'm not going to suggest that uh, the uh, architect was there for a sinister purpose, although I suspect he was. <coughs> but this much, at least, we can say. There is no way at that point that anyone could have claimed to know scientifically that this man had not perceived explosions. Hadn't studied the rubble, the re physical residue, hadn't done a comprehensive study of video or still footage, hadn't done a comprehensive investigation of eyewitnesses. How on earth could he make that judgment? But there's more. He's interfering with a criminal investigation. I don't care whether you look at this as a homicide investigation or a fire investigation or a bombing investigation. In all three cases, it's clear that eyewitness testimony is important and that you go to the scene and you gather it. You don't tell eyewitnesses what they did and didn't perceive. He's interfering with the investigation. And one of the reasons this is so important is because as I read through the firefighters' oral histories, I could see that in the months, they were collected mainly from about October 2001 to January 2002, and that over those months, some of them are beginning to retreat from their statements. Well, maybe I didn't see that. And during that whole period, they are being bombarded, largely through the mass media, with the structural failure hypothesis. And more specifically, the so-called pancake theory, according to which the towers came down because of pancaking floors. Now, that theory was ultimately given up by NIST. So it's sad when you see these people doubting their own senses in favor of a hypothesis which is thoroughly discredited now. My uh, witness list is not uh, comprehensive. But I will be submitting to the Toronto hearings 
statements from 156 eyewitnesses. <clears throat> so this will be an appendix to my presentation. It's 35 pages long because it includes the actual words of each of these uh, people. This eyewitness evidence has been ignored or suppressed by the 9-11 Commission and the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And I can be fairly brief here because if we ask how many references there are to eyewitnesses to eyewitness statements about explosions in the towers in the 585 pages of the 9-11 Commission, we find that there is one sentence fragment. <coughs> they are discussing firefighters who were in the North Tower when the South Tower came down, and this is what they say. <coughs> Those firefighters not standing near windows facing south had no way of knowing that the South Tower had collapsed. Many surmised that a bomb had exploded. That's it, 585 pages. This implies that eyewitnesses who thought there were explosions were in the North Tower at the time the South Tower came down. In fact, most of them weren't. It also implies that they made a mistake. And they made that mistake because they had impede an impeded view. They weren't near a window. They couldn't see what was going on. This is grotesquely misleading. Many eyewitnesses were looking directly at the towers. And you've all, I've already showed you examples. So whether it's deliberate or not, this is a, an extremely inadequate and misleading way of dealing with this important testimony. If we ask about the Na National Institute of Standards and Technology now, which was given the specific job of figuring out why these building, buildings collapsed, how many references are there? to eyewitnesses to explosions in the towers in the 295 pages of the final report. Zero. Not one. Now you need to know that the 9-11 Commission and NIST had access to the same material that I have access to. It's not as if I have some mysterious sources here. And yet they both miss my 156 eyewitnesses to explosions not to mention many other eyewitnesses that are not in my list. Whether that's deliberate suppression of evidence, which would be a crime, or whether it's simply massive incompetence, does not concern me today. Because either way, we have an investigation that is thoroughly inadequate, and that's why we need a new one. And I want to begin, I want to end, sorry, with one last guy, Gary Gates. I looked up and the building exploded. The whole top came off like a volcano. And, you know, Gary Gates could, of course, be wrong, but if you ask me if 156 are wrong, I'm going to say no, I don't think so. From Toronto in 2011, that was Gray McQueen. The man in his most recent interview for the Global Research News Hour was back in September of 2020. He spoke about whether nearly 20 years later, 9-11 still matters. Here's a replay of that interview on the Global Research News Hour. Well, let me first say something about the war on terror. I don't think it's over. I think it's too useful to a number of states, including especially the U.S. and Israel. Remember that the war on terror began around 1979 and was prominent in the Reagan era. And at that point, terrorism was targeted, so-called terrorism, all kinds of social groups, but they were said to have a sponsor. 
which was the Soviet Union. So you managed to promote the Cold War as well as the War on Terror. So we shouldn't see these as necessarily competing. They often overlap. With 9-11, you're right, we had a new phase. And Bush pretty much announced that um, Soviet Union is no longer our enemy. It's struggling toward democracy <laughs> and will join us and we'll all gang together to go after who? Well, you know, sure, Al-Qaeda, terrorists, blah, 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 but those aren't their real concern. We all know that. So they tied these to states that they wanted to target. And they said, just as they had said before, look, there are evil states that are sponsoring these terrorists. In this case, it was the so-called axis of evil. So you targeted Iraq and Iran and Syria and so on. And they happened to be major uh, rivals of Israel. And that's part of the reason they were targeted. But they were also sitting on a lot of oil. And that's a good reason for the U.S. to want to control that region. So throughout this, we, we shouldn't get distracted by the terrorism narrative. It's very important because groups rising up here and there may easily be demonized that way and wiped out. But the, the attempt is usually to tie them to states and therefore to justify good old-fashioned invasion and destruction of states. So that was done right after 9-11. Afghanistan was demonized and invaded. Iraq was demonized and invaded. And we shouldn't forget that there was a strong effort in the fall of 2001 to tie Iraq to uh, both 9-11 and especially the anthrax attacks that came after. Now, uh, that, that worked very well for, fairly well for them for a number of years. You're asking whether things have changed now. I think so. I think we have uh, the U.S. in a situation where they can't ignore uh, China and Russia. They were hoping Russia would quietly die, and it didn't. Um, and China is, of course, a major economic rival. So how can we demonize those states and how can we connect that to the war on terror? That's what I think the challenge is going to be for the U.S. and, and, and its allies in the coming region, uh, coming um, era. And we've seen hints of it already. So, for example, when we hear that um, Russian sponsored groups in Ukraine shot down a Malaysian plane, then we get everything. We get we get a terrible, violent terrorist act, and it's somehow behind it lurks Russia. And I, I'm so I'm worried about the double perpetrator hypothesis, the state sponsor and the proxy terrorist group. I'm I'm worried about that being used to foment new wars. Um, whether they be limited drone strike kinds of wars or whether they be full-on invasions. So we have to keep our eyes open because, of course, sometimes there are real terrorists and sometimes, uh, you know, other states do do evil things. But the fact is, as we've seen, as uh, an extraordinary amount of deception, huge number of false flag attacks. So we have to keep our eyes open and we have to keep looking at the evidence to sort all this out. So, in a sense, you are saying we've got to be wary of the fact that the, 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 that the same position that Osama bin Laden was in is now going to be occupied by uh, Russia, but just in a different uh, field. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Well, yes, except I would say uh, not. Russia doesn't replace al-Qaeda or bin Laden. Okay. Russia replaces perhaps Iraq, the, the evil 
middle size rogue states that we heard about for a long time. And you're right, there's a Putin narrative. Everyone's supposed to hate Putin. Even U.S. liberals and even U.S. so-called leftists have this evil Putin narrative. I don't believe it. I think the guy has largely been cautious. And, um, you know, he has, he knows the provocation game. He knows they're trying to provoke him, just like they're trying to provoke China. They've tried to provoke North Korea. They've provoked Syria repeatedly, and they, but they understand that game, and so they usually don't rise to the bait, and we shouldn't rise to it either. Graham McQueen recently co-authored an article for Global Research, which reported that on the day the World Trade Center came down, 36 reporters commented on there being explosions and not fire-induced collapses, which became the official narrative. I asked him to expand on the significance of that fact. Yes. Well, first of all, 9-11 remains an important event. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Every time the U.S. seems to lose its direction, they can refer to 9-11 and the need to have a huge military and the need to invade here and there and everywhere. <clears throat> it's by no means in the past. It's our present. Secondly, um, you have to know that the official story, the state narrative in the U.S. and in almost every state in the world, uh, the narrative, the story of what happened on 9-11 was that these planes hit the buildings and that's why the buildings came down. That somehow two planes hitting two buildings destroyed the entire seven-building world trade complex. This is on the face of it rather odd. When you look into it further, you find all these witnesses who said, well, there was a huge explosion just as the building started to come down. And they say that about building uh, one and building two and some witnesses about building seven. Now, why would they say that? If you've read the official stories of these buildings and their demise, whether it's in the 9-11 Commission report or the much more detailed accounts by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, there is no room for explosions at that stage of the day. Uh, there are explosions when the uh, planes first hit the buildings. But when the buildings come down, the jet fuel is, is burnt off. There is no reason for a major explosion of the kind that would destroy such enormous buildings. Therefore, when you get eyewitnesses saying there was an enormous explosion and then the buildings were pulverized in front of my eyes. This suggests that the official narrative is wrong and that investigators, including the FBI, should have said, what the hell is going on? Let's interview these people. Let's find out what they saw, what they heard. Now, I first got interested in this 15 years ago and wrote an article about the fire department of New York and the fact that 118 uh, members of the fire department heard or saw or felt explosions at that time. And what this new article is, is Ted Walter and, and me getting together and looking at journalists, um, what they saw and what they reported right there on the scene on the day of 9-11. I have to thank Ted for that piece of work for a number of reasons. One of which is I felt a little bit lost by that point in terms of gathering eyewitness reports and his enthusiasm 
for going through all this video footage, TV footage, <clears throat> uh, helped inspire me to uh, to assist him in this new effort. Now, why is it important? It's important because the firefighters, when they were interviewed, were looking back on what they had experienced a few weeks or a few months previous. And we know that memory can sometimes distort. But these media people were right on the scene on 9-11 itself, and in some cases reporting what they saw as they saw it. You can't talk about the distortions of memory. And here we have all these witnesses, including 21 that personally uh, directly perceived explosions, which was about 84% of the direct witnesses we found. The number who who talked about you know the building collapsing from plane impact was much smaller than those who talked about explosions. So what does this mean? It means that the main narrative of those on the scene on 9-11 was that these buildings had somehow been blown up, that explosions had contributed in a major way to their demise. And this is not the same as the official narrative. It is a complete contradiction of the official narrative. Now you will, and this is important, so you'll find people who come along and say that those of us who say the towers and Building 7 were blown up are revisionists. We're Johnny-come-latelys. We come tagging along saying instead of the obvious that the planes knocked down the buildings, that a more exotic interpretation is necessary, that you know explosives were placed in the building. No, we know that now to be wrong. We know that the revisionist theory is the official theory that planes knock down the buildings, that the dominant explanation on the scene, on the day, was quite different. It was the one that, that I've been trying to talk about and get people to see, as well as many other people for the last 15 years. These buildings were pre-wired with explosives, and they were brought down by insiders on 9-11. And that is still important because because it's true, the whole global war on terror that began in 9-11, that phase of it, is a fraud. I then questioned the possibility that terms like conspiracy theorist might have successfully destroyed any attempts at refuting the official story even before the facts are heard. My advice is <clears throat> I have a lot of academic friends who write long articles and PhD theses and books on conspiracy theory to try and answer this kind of objection. And I, uh, I admire them for their patience. I think that has to be done inside the university. University is an important arena of struggle and you need to answer, <clears throat> you need to answer people in, in that kind of detail. I personally don't have the patience for it. And most of the people I argue with these days about 9-11 are not academics anyway. They're ordinary folks, and going into a long explanation is not a very good answer. I find a brief answer is better. Um, you chuckle. Uh, you say that name-calling isn't really a very fruitful way of having a dialogue, um, that you're not going to call them uh, you know, true believers and so on, and you hope they won't dismiss you as a conspiracy theorist, that let's get to the evidence. Let's start talking about the evidence. And most people, most of the time, you know, you can dismiss that name-calling pretty quickly that way um, because it's it's very shallow. It's silly. I mean, of course there are conspiracies in the world. Um, and uh, 
I'm sure they're also paranoid people, but that's neither here nor there. What we're interested is following following the evidence and um, and not allowing what uh, I think it's Daniel Goleman called amygdala hijack, uh, which is the main hijacking that happened on 9/11. That's when you know you're so shocked and scared that uh, the primitive part of your brain takes over, Fri uh, fight, flight or freezing in place, and you can't use your the higher functions of your brain. And so you, you start going, oh my God, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda. And anybody who questions that, you just can't, you can't do that. And they, believe me, academics, I don't care whether you've got a PhD or not, you can, you're still subject to amygdala hijack. Uh, and your amygdala doesn't have a PhD. It never does. It's, it just doesn't think that way. And so until those people can be brought very gently out of their state of um, shock and fear and so on, uh, they won't they won't be able to rationally dialogue with you. So it, it usually doesn't help to attack them. It usually uh, helps to uh, smile and start a somewhat more gentle conversation. That was Gray McQueen speaking to the Global Research News Hour in September of 2020. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced at CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. The show is also broadcast on affiliated radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. My name is Michael Welch. This week we are airing talks by the legendary figure among 9-11 truthers, Graham McQueen, on the specific topic of the September 11th attacks. When it comes to the follow-up attacks in the form of envelopes filled with deadly anthrax and targeting U.S. Democratic candidates in office, few people can match Graham McQueen in making a write-up on the assault. Here now is an interview with the Global Research News Hour on this subject from September 2016. Maybe uh, inform our listeners, uh, what is it that caught your eye about the anthrax attacks that you sought to make it the focus of your book? Well, first of all, I uh, had been studying the so-called 9-11 attacks for some years. And uh, I knew they were a fraud. And I thought, oh my God, this is really important. But now I'm hearing stuff about the anthrax attacks. I'm hearing that, um, that the anthrax in those letters came from inside the U.S. military-industrial complex. And I had read this in other people's, you know, articles and so on. And I thought, wait a minute, if that's true, that's really important. Um, so I thought, you know, I'm retired and I have the, uh, I have the good fortune to be able to take time off when I want to. So I just cleared the, cleared the desk and said, I'm going to look into the anthrax attacks and find out at least what the basic facts are about them. And I quickly confirmed that, yes, it's true. Um, they were a fraud. They were blamed on uh, Al-Qaeda and, and Iraq. And in fact, the spores were traced to U.S. military lab. That is to say, a, a lab serving the U.S. military and intelligence communities. So I thought, as I looked further, I found something else that I hadn't known before. And that is that there was overlapping personnel in the two attacks in the 9/11 attacks and in the anthrax attacks some of the <laughs> some of the same guys namely the so-called hijackers uh showed up in both 
And somehow that had escaped my attention before. So then I thought, well, wait a minute, this is this is extremely important because if the anthrax attacks are provably a fraud, right? If they provably came from within the U.S. military industrial complex, and if they have the same personnel, <laughs> the same guys involved in them as in 9-11 – then this is another way of showing that the 9-11 attacks were a fraud. We've already got all kinds of ways of showing that they were a fraud, but this is an interesting angle. And it also suggests that this was one operation, not two. It was one operation with two parts. So that's when I decided to really get into it. I wrote an article and then somebody said to me, you know, that could actually be a small book. And so one thing led to another and it became a book. Now, I... Um I wonder if you could just recall, both from your own research and your own recollections of 15 years ago, what were the impacts of those anthrax letters uh, at that time coming right on top of the 9-11 terror attacks? Well, the truth is that if I tried to put myself back to that time, I, I could barely remember them. Um, you know, I mean, the anthrax attacks were pretty big news in the U.S., a little bit less in Canada. And the scare was big for a while and then quickly went away. And you see, this is part of the story. Part of the story is that once it was found out that they didn't come from Islamic extremists and all the rest of that cooked up story, there was a tendency to, well, not just a tendency, I think it was a deliberate uh, effort on the part of the FBI and other agencies to sweep the whole thing down the memory hole. And so there are many people today, including many Americans who were adults at the time, who barely remember them. Oh, yeah, something about anthrax in the mail. Um, you know, because it didn't turn out right, did it? I mean, you know, the story fell apart. It fell apart very rapidly. By the end of 2001, it was gone. It was in tatters. And um, so that really is – that turned out to be – part of my mission and part of the point of the book to remind people wait a minute you know you can't forget about these because they could be one of the major keys to unlock the door to the global war on terror yes now as you pointing out in the uh, your opening remarks the attacks seemed aimed at people uh in this instance they seem to be aimed at people who are in a position to expedite the passage of the Patriot Act at uh, Tom Daschle and Leahy uh through through the Senate and the House of Representatives they but uh, they also served prop propaganda functions uh of linking 911 with Iraq so do do you have any insights into whether one or the other was the prime motive or is it impossible to kind of separate the two as motives? Yeah, it's it's very difficult. Uh I'm always reluctant to pretend to know more than I can actually prove. What is clear is that anthrax letters were sent to two senators as you pointed out, both democratic senators and both after they had slowed down the passage of the Patriot Act. And it, this is this is not rocket science. I mean, Cheney said he wanted the act passed by October 5th, but it wasn't passed on October 5th because of two senators who slowed it down. Then, somewhere between October 6th and 9th, letters were put in the mail containing deadly anthrax to precisely those two senators and only those two senators. 
right? So it's it's pretty obvious that it was an an attempt to intimidate them and indeed Congress more generally, which wasn't passing the Patriot Act as quick as the neoconservatives wanted them to. On the other hand, as you pointed out, there was far more uh, going on than just intimidating Congress to pass the Patriot Act. One of the functions, I'm absolutely certain, of the anthrax attacks, just like 9-11, was to facilitate attacks on foreign nations. And by the middle of October, as you pointed out, the theory that was gaining momentum was what I call the double perpetrator hypothesis, which is that Al-Qaeda you know, had had prepared the actual letters with their misspellings and their clumsy printing and all the, you know, um, Allah is great, death to Israel, death to America, all that nonsense. And that, um, but that, you know, Al-Qaeda wasn't sophisticated enough to make this stuff, this actual physical anthrax. And so that had come from Iraq. So they managed to try and frame um, basically, they managed to justify the invasion of both those countries, you know, uh, and and it would have worked, except uh, they made some big mistakes and the story fell apart. Could you zero in on those big mistakes? I mean, you mentioned that the, the, the tracing the uh, this particular strain of anthrax to <clears throat> Fort Detrick, there was clearly an intention. Well, it seems like I'm following what you put in the book that they wanted a sophisticated state apparatus so that they could somehow pin the blame on Iraq and just thereby justify that invasion. But they used a strain that Iraq doesn't use and that's traceable to the United States. Why, <laughs> why did they make that? I mean, is it really that difficult to see that this isn't going to fall apart? Was it just incompetence? What, what are your thoughts? Why? Uh, again, I would need to speculate, and there are different views on that. Um, in the small community of people who study the anthrax attacks. So, you know, my view isn't necessarily the same as everyone else's. Um, one thing was noticeable, and that is that when it was discovered it was the Ames strain of anthrax, people did not immediately conclude that it came from the United States. In fact, there were articles in major U.S. newspapers saying that that information was not helpful in pinning it down because the AIM strain was had become so common that it was all over the world and probably wouldn't help in narrowing it down. Now, that turned out not to be true. But it may be that the perpetrators were a bit sloppy there and thought they could pass it off. The other thing is, as you know, it wasn't just the strain of the anthrax that was used that turned out to be a fingerprint. It was also the weaponization process micro-encapsulation, especially in the case of the anthrax that went to the two senators. Um, and, and again, how, how could they have been so sloppy? Well, there was a major propaganda effort, we have to remember, in October and to some extent beyond that, to make it look like the weaponization process was Iraqi. ABC News was especially complicit in this, and they said they had four high-level, separate, you know, uh, experts who said that there was bentonite on the anthrax spores, and that only Iraq used bentonite um, uh, to weaponize its anthrax, and they were really pushing that story hard. But unfortunately for them, they seem to have allowed some scientists seem to have got into the uh, into the game here who weren't supposed to be in it. In other words, some genuine scientists actually got a look at the anthrax spores, or in some cases, 
They got a look at studies of the spores, and they kind of scratched their heads and said, there's no bentonite here. This, is, this isn't Iraqi, and it certainly isn't Al-Qaeda. This looks like our stuff. <laughs> you know? and, and I mean, even, even the uh, armed forces, like the Armed Forces Institute of Pathology studied the spores and, and put out a little report, which I have. It's quite brief, but it says, no, there's no bentonite here. So my guess is that the conspirators, and I don't mind using that term because that's what they were, who put this thing together, uh, thought they could keep the circle fairly small and handle it. They had felt, well, we've got control of the media. We'll have ABC put out some baloney, you know, and we've got control of this and that. And so we don't need to read in all of these scientists and military people and so on who might, after all, not want to go along with this. And I think, you know, somewhere along the line, they made a huge mistake there because the whistle was blown on them to a large extent by people that you would think of as insiders. Now, talk about uh, they're moving on to the lone wolf perpetrator scenarios. Uh, the first, uh, Stephen Hatfill and then Bruce Ivins, who uh, apparently committed death by suicide by swallowing a lot of Tylenol. Um, now, why did the U.S. authorities move to that particular scenario? Uh, as, as their, what, was it damage control? Uh, what, did it serve any other purposes other than, to, as I say, you know, just trying to move away from the, uh, the failed Iraq uh, um, uh, implication there? No, I think you've got it right. It's damage control. It's option B. It's what's sometimes called a limited hangout, where you allow certain parts of the truth to come out, but you lie. You continue to lie about essential parts. So so what are you letting out? You're saying, oh, gosh, it does seem this anthrax is our own. Seems like it came from our own, you know, military-industrial complex. In this case, they're saying it's from uh, Fort Detrick, and Bruce Ivins was a scientist who worked there, you know, and he had to have certain clearance and so on. And they're saying, damn it, you know, it did come from in our inside. So, so they're admitting it's an inside job, though they don't use the term. They're admitting it's a false flag attack that was blamed on people who didn't do it, though they don't use that term either. But what are they hiding? Well, they're hiding what's rather obvious, and I argue for it in my book, and that is that it wasn't done by any individual, whether Bruce Ivins or anyone else. This, Everything about this says it was done by a sophisticated, widespread network of people, just like the 9-11 attacks. And that's what they're keen on hiding. And if you can make your lone wolf, which is the term they use – into a lone nut, so much the better, which is exactly what they tried to do with Ivan. So he was on medication, he was unstable, some of which is true, but it didn't mean he was the anthrax killer. I've seen never a, a smidgen of convincing evidence that Ivan's had anything to do with the attacks. Uh, but, you know, stress his instability and make him more unstable. Show up at work, harass his family, say you're going to seek the death penalty. And uh, get the guy scared out of his mind, which is, is what they did. Uh, whether he actually took his life uh, because of all this stress or whether someone just killed him as part of the operation, I frankly don't know. But either way, whether directly or indirectly, the FBI is responsible for that man's death. Mm. And dead men tell no tales. So 
Exactly. I mean, you know, they didn't have to have a trial. It's hard to imagine how they could have won if it went to uh, court. I mean, they had nothing. So uh, as in so many of these incidents within the war on terror, the alleged perpetrator somehow dies and the court case is avoided. Uh, if you look in Canada, Canada recently, 2013, 2014, right? You find 2013, the guys they set up, um, you know, John Nuttall and Amanda Carotti, uh, actually, you know, are, are allowed to live. So there's a trial and the RCMP is disgraced. They're disgraced. It all falls apart. In 2014, in the attack on Parliament, the the so-called terrorist takes 31 bullets. So there will be no trial. I'm wondering, um, in, in the in the bit of time we have left, the uh, efforts to link the architects of the anthrax deception with the 9/11 hijackers, with the architects of the 9/11 attacks. Could you, you know, concretize that bridge for us? Yes. Well, um, it's difficult to do without PowerPoint slides. <laughs> but um, I give in my book several examples of how particular people that we know uh, we that are called the 19 hijackers, okay? Let's forget about the question for the moment as to whether they actually hijacked anything on September 11th, but they're called the hijackers. So several of them show up in the preparations for the anthrax attacks. So, for example, uh, a woman named Gloria Irish turns out to be the real estate agent of the first man to die of anthrax. Um, And she turns out to be the real estate agent of several of the 19 hijackers as well. Well, that's kind of weird. What are the odds of that? And as we begin to look into this, we see, for example, that the so-called leader of the hijackers, Mohammed Atta, is is running around the place, making himself very visible, and um, trying to do things like uh, get the U.S. Department of Agriculture to give him a crop duster plane. So that and he's and he says, "I'm an engineer. I'm going to modify this so I can dust all these crops without having to reland and and refill." And then um, he threatens to cut the throat of the U.S. Department of Agriculture person who's interviewing him, and he uh, makes all kinds of comments about Osama bin Laden. And it's the whole scenario is so absurd, you just want to laugh. So this is obviously a guy who's. I don't know if he's really, uh, his name is Mohammed Atta or what his name is, but he's running around acting a role and he's laying down a trail of breadcrumbs that we're supposed to follow. And that trail is supposed to connect 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. That's its aim. Because remember, Saddam Hussein was said to have, to, to want to use crop duster planes you know, to spread his anthrax. So suddenly there's all this stuff about crop dusters and these hijackers are running around trying to get crop duster planes. And you see, they were successful in laying down a trail of breadcrumbs and the press and everybody was cheerfully following the trail until the whole story fell apart. I just want to ask you one more question, if I may, Professor McQueen. Uh, it's been yes. two, almost two years since uh, your book came out. I was wondering if there's, if you've seen any new revelations uh, on the subject of the anthrax that uh, may uh, figure into the uh, the overall uh, scenario with regard to nine eleven. 
Well, certainly. <laughs> Not long after the book was published, uh, we had a major whistleblower, <laughs> Richard Lambert, who was for a time the head of the FBI's anthrax investigation, uh, got into a serious conflict with the FBI when he left the agency and tried to get a job elsewhere, and they blackballed him. And he took them to court. And one of the things that he says, if you read it all, his document, is that one of the reasons he's being harassed is because he blew the whistle on the anthrax attacks. He says that his office was, in effect, set up to fail. He said there is, I think the term he used was, a wealth of exculpatory evidence. Now, there was a whole bunch of evidence showing that Bruce Ivins, the lone nut, uh, which the FBI still officially calls the anthrax killer, shows that he was innocent. And um, and there's evidence there, he said, that the public has never been shown, that the FBI is still sitting on. And really, when I read his, his thing, I thought, well, this just confirms everything I said in the book. And I suppose if I ever bring out another edition, I'd have to discuss that. The American people are willing to fight wars if their blood is up, if their blood is boiling hot, well, what is it that triggers that phase change? This created mass murder. In public, 3,000 people were killed. Ed Walter joins me now, a past colleague of the um, of Graham McQueen, and uh, he directed the movie Peace, War, and 9-11, which is focused on Graham's uh, principal contributions to 9-11 research. Uh, he's also the executive director of the International Center for 9-11 Justice. Could you maybe say a little bit about what makes it different from other the, the other dozens of, of documentaries uh, focused on the flaws in the official story of 9-11? What makes it distinct? Yeah, so I think it's, for me, it's distinct uh, in that it's narrated by Graham McQueen, who is one of the foremost scholars of, of 9-11. And for people that know Graham or have heard him speak before, we uh, we all know that he's very eloquent, very articulate, and, you know, very incisive in his analysis of 9-11. And so I think that he tells in this film, uh, he tells sort of the, the story of 9-11, uh, the, the big picture story of 9-11. And, and so it's not only about the events of 9-11, and, and and by the way, I should add that he also talks about the anthrax attacks and he talks about them together as, you know, attacks you know, that were perpetrated by the same by the same parties, essentially. Um, but he talks about 9-11 in the larger context of war and the war machine. And so he talks about war as a system. Uh, and this is something that he taught about uh, when he was a professor at McMaster University um, in Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, he was a professor there for over 30 years, and he started something called the Center for Peace Studies. And so one of the areas that he taught on was, um, you know, peace studies and, and war. And so he looks at war as a system. It's not just a series of events. Um, as he gets into in the film, he talked about war as sort of an all-encompassing system that has sort of a parasitic effect on human society. And he talks about, so uh, we're always in sort of, you know, in a state of war in this system, but then there has to be triggers what he calls war triggers to move us from a cold phase to a hot phase when there's actual violence and you know mass lethal killing uh and so he looks at 9-11 as a war trigger uh as the mother of all war triggers if you, if you like you know and so this is not like a, a brand new premise for people who are familiar with 
um, you know, the, the flaws and the, and the, the, the outright falsity of the official story of 9-11. Uh, but, but I think it's a very effective way to presenting this um, argument, uh, this analysis to, to an audience that is not yet familiar with it or hasn't really given it a chance yet. Um, and yeah. it's also, I'll just say it's also, you know, he, get, he did this interview six months before his passing, uh, you know, last October, and he died in April. And so this is really his final words to, you know, to the world um, before, he, before he died. And he knew that he was going to be dying soon. And, and so he took the time to do this interview. Um, and, and yeah, so it's very special and very moving as well. Was it his plan to, to, to come up with the, come, with this special movie? Yeah. So, so Graham told me about a year ago, uh, that he, um, you know, he had cancer for a few years and he told me about a year ago that his doctors told him that he probably only had months left to live. And he and I had been working, um, closely together for many years and I had wanted to interview him, uh, for some time to do this long sit down interview with him. So. Uh, I asked him if he would be willing to do this long interview uh, and possibly make a film out of it. Um, and he took a little bit of time to think about it and then he, he agreed to do it. Um, and so from there, we actually did work together to raise the funds to, to, to make the film, you know, to, to hire a good production crew to go to Hamilton and do the interview with him. And so he really reached out to his friends to ask them for donations to, to fund the, the, the first stage of the film. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was sort of a, a, a journey that we went on together in the final months of his life. And he got to see, he got to see the trailer before he, you know, before he passed away in April. Um, and so he was very, you know, very honored and moved and, and, and very supportive of the, of the project. And it was, for me, it's been an honor to work on this and has sort of kept his spirit very much alive after his passing, you know, and, and the same for all of my colleagues involved in making the film and involved in, in the organization. So. Yeah. You, you caught him. There was a point that he really seemed to get choked up. But what was what exactly was the source of that? You know, verklemptedness. I guess you might say. Yeah. Well, I think it was a determination on on both of our parts to get his ideas out there. He talks about in the film how you know in the last few months of his life that it was giving him great sense of satisfaction and fulfillment that he was, you know, that he was completing his mission. In life and his his mission for pretty much all of his adult life as he says in the film has been to oppose war and so he looked at this this film along with a couple other things that he he worked on in the last months of his life as as completing his mission uh and so we talked about that in the beginning of the interview and we talked about it towards the end of the interview and so you see some mo some some very moving moments in the film where you know this is not just about 9-11 not just about war and all these things but it's about his own the completion of his own mission um, and his his effort to transmit, um, you know, his message to the world. And so, yeah, he was, you know, it got very emotional during the interview, you know, on, on both of our parts. You don't see me in the film at all, but we were there was a, there was a stage in which we were kind of we were both crying, you know, as we yeah. were finished the interview. And that, that's made made for a really good film. Very well produced. Um, Thank you. Could you, could you talk a little bit about where how people might wish to see the film? It, it, it begins to air on the 6th, which is just a few days away. Yeah, absolutely. So it's going to premiere. We're having the world premiere on September 6th in Hamilton, Ontario, uh, where he lived and taught for much of his life. Uh, it's going to be at the Westdale Theatre. Uh, so if you're nearby, if you're in Toronto or Hamilton or nearby, you know, please come to the film. It starts at seven o'clock. You know, we've got a nice, beautiful movie theater, 350 seats. Let's let's do our best to fill it up and 
and there'll be a lot of people from, you know, Graham's life, you know, people that he worked with, taught with people that he taught, um, who will, who will be coming to the premiere. All of my colleagues at the International Center for 9-11 Justice, the, the board of directors and myself will be there um, for the premiere. So there's that on September 6th. Um, then there's September 8th, it's gonna be released online. Uh, and as it stands now, the plan, the plan is to release it on Rumble on the 8th. Uh, I won't say what channel that is yet, but it's, it's gonna be, it looks like a very, very popular channel. So it sh should reach a lot of people. So if you, and you can go to our website, ic911.org to learn to learn more about where you can watch it online. So September 8th on Rumble, uh, September 10th, there will be a New York City premiere. Um, and again, you can find this all on ic911.org. Uh, and then on September 11th, there will be the YouTube premiere as well as it will be showing at the, the film festival in the San Francisco Bay area on the 11th. So a handful of theatrical screenings and then you know look for it online either on Rumble or on YouTube and you can just, you can find the information on our website. Yeah, before you close, uh, I mean, you mentioned that the, all the board members of the International uh, Center for 9-11 Justice are going to be there. Can you, that's linked to Graham McQueen as well, correct? Yes, absolutely. So Graham, one of the things that he did in the final months of his life, besides uh, help make this film, was to help launch this new organization called the International Center for 9-11 Justice, which is a continuation of an organization that's existed since 2008, the International Center for 9-11 Studies. But Graham helped bring together uh, as well the Journal of 9-11 Studies and the 9-11 Consensus Panel, two other, two other groups that he had been involved with under this one umbrella of the International Center for 9-11 Justice. And so really those were, in the last few months, like, you know, we, we, were, we were, he was going to meetings with us every week and doing his best to help get this organization off the ground. So this organization is very much carrying on his mission and his legacy um, as, as best as, as we can. And so when I say board members, folks like that, your audience may be familiar with like Kevin Ryan, uh, the great 9-11 researcher, Elizabeth Woodworth, um, who was uh, responsible for the 9-11 consensus panel, worked with um, David Ray Griffin on that uh, and others, David Chandler, Piers Robinson, et cetera. So we're all, we're all really excited about being there meeting Graham's friends and family and, and, and having this really special event on the 6th. Okay. Well, taste of, of immortality in, in a sense with this uh, center and, and the film. Ted Walter, thank you very much for sharing with our listeners. Thank you, Michael. Really appreciate it. On the Global Research News Hour, we heard a September 11th special focused on a few contributions by the legendary speaker, Graham McQueen. Next week, we will have another September 11th show, not from September 2001, but from September 1973. We will feature an examination of the details around the coup in Chile. Be sure to join us then. The show is the Global Research News Hour, funded by the Center for Research on Globalization, and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart Métis Nation homeland. Music was the song Shifting Sands from the Purple Planet Music and available at the website purple-planet.com. My name is Michael Welch. Please join us again next week for more special programming. <laughs>